0: and grow in our ability to see it and so I thank you for these Christians here this morning Lord uh, who've come together to do that have come together to seek some help in growing in understanding your word and we pray you by your spirit would give help and you would grow us all in your word and for your glory and according to your grace and because Jesus died we thank you for him and again we pray in his name amen Well, we've uh, entitled this seminar, How to Study the Bible, colon, Epistles. So we'll get to Epistles in in just a few minutes here, but let's first start at a much broader level than that. Let's, uh, page two in your notes, you can turn there. Let's start with this general point, this first point on page two. Why study the Bible? Should every Christian study the Bible? Is this something that just academics do, professors do, pastors do in order to get sermons ready? Well, there are indeed different levels of Bible intake. Uh, Some are very academic. Uh, Here's one of my more academic commentaries on Philippians. It's in this series called the New International Greek Testament Commentary. This is a commentary on the Greek of Philippians and uh, what, how many pages is this? 589 on the four chapters of Philippians, interacting with all kinds of uh, ancient literature outside the Bible. Very academic, helpful for someone like me, uh, but very academic. It's a different kind of study than, than you probably do in your personal Bible reading, and that's good and right. Um, there's reading that's devotional, and it's maybe intended as we read the Bible at times, just to be for the heart, just to see how to live, uh, to get a nugget here or there. And that's probably a good part of Bible intake diet, right? So we need times where we're memorizing a verse, and we're not really concentrating on the verses around it. Maybe we'll do that some other time. Right now, we're trying to get that one nugget of truth in that verse into our head so we remember it later on. Uh, Sometimes we're listening to the Bible on audio in our car, And we're getting a a breadth of Bible, um, but maybe not not a whole lot of depth. You're not going back and playing the same chapter over and over. Maybe you are, but that would be a different kind. So there's long reading, there's short reading, there's devotional reading, there's study reading. I, I heard Chuck Swindoll say that studying the Bible is reading the Bible with a pencil in hand. Well, that's maybe true, maybe not true. It's certainly limited uh, it's more than just that, but that's a good start, isn't it? A pencil in hand means you're going to mark things. You're going to write things down. You're going to think. You're going to cognate over God's Word. Christians, all Christians, should study the Bible. They're all called to grow in understanding Scripture. I just prayed at the beginnings, things from Psalm 119, that God would show us wondrous things out of His Word. Right? Meditation is probably given in in Psalm 119 uh, in various forms a dozen or more times. Uh, Maybe a dozen or more times, Psalm 119 says, um, give me understanding according to your word. So we ponder, we meditate. Jeremiah 9 says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness on the earth. So, that's what we can trust in and rest on that we, that we know the Lord and are growing in knowing the Lord. We do that through his word. Um, the Bereans come to mind, Acts 17. Remember there, the Berean Christians were more noble because two things, they received the apostles' teaching eagerly and two, they tested it daily to see if it was according to scripture. They're everyday Christians, Right? And they tested it. They received it from on high, like from those over him, but over them, but yet they tested it with their own knowledge of Scripture as well. So, regardless of the different levels or kinds of Bible intake, and because every Christian is called to understand Scripture and grow in understanding Scripture, look in your notes. The goal of all Bible intake is heat and light. We want to understand God better don't we? Uh, and he's infinite, and his word is complex, and so we want to we know who he is and what he's done and what he says. We want to know how to live, what to do, how to think, how to feel. And we're not perfect at these things yet, so God's word is what teaches us these things and shows us these things. We need clarity on these things and we need growth in these things. And we need growth not just in the amount of knowledge that we have but in the skill by which we go to the Word and milk it. Right? We drink from it. So why study the Bible? Because God tells us to. Every Christian, yes, should indeed study the Bible and grow in understanding it. The second point in this first session. Some basics of biblical interpretation. What are some basics that we should assume as we go into this? Well, one, a passage means what the author intended for the people to whom he wrote it. That's kind of wordy. I'm sure there's a better way of wording that, but it has some necessary ingredients that I I think need to be there. You see, there's a meaning in a passage, a single meaning, by the way, so let's just get rid of all this language of, well, I feel like the Bible here says to this, this to me. I feel like it, 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 it means this for me. There's a single meaning with different applications or multiple implications. There's a meaning. There's also a context in which a, a book of the Bible or a passage was, was written. So we've got to think in terms of the author's intent we're trying to get inside not just Paul's, in this case, Paul's words. We're trying, in a sense, to get inside Paul's brain. So notice that chart on the top of page three. You are the Bible student. The author, that would be for us today, Paul. So We talk about Philippians or other epistles. Paul wrote to certain people, didn't he? He wrote letters to certain people or churches, and those are the recipients. Now one thing we've got to be really careful of is that we are not taking our own assumptions, ideas, presuppositions, thoughts or needs, our own context, in reading it into the Bible, or too quickly taking those words and simply directly applying it to our our lives and our situation. It may mean something totally different once we understand what those words meant. In the mind of Paul and as he meant those words for the church at Philippi. We want to get inside Paul's thought bubble, and we want to get inside the thought bubbles of the Philippian church as this letter was read in their midst as it came to them. So we don't want to just apply immediately, words to life, and, and that's it. We want to get inside Paul's mind. That, that takes some work. It takes some asking of questions and some thought. Uh, it takes patience. We want to get inside the world that Paul wrote in and the Philippians lived in. And there's a situation. We want, to, we want to understand something of the backstory for why a book like Philippians was written in the first place. Another basic of biblical interpretation is that interpreting or studying the Bible requires layers of analysis. So think here, whether this is, you know, you studying the Bible or a a professor, scholar, Ph.D. writing a giant Greek commentary, there are layers involved in interpretation that we have to keep in mind. So, you know, Google Zoom, right, or Google Earth, You can get real close, you know, you can see a street, and then you can zoom way out and go to the other side of the world, and it's really fun to, you know, to hit that button where it zooms, and you get lifted up, it's like you, uh, it's like you're a superhero, and you just jumped to another continent. There are different layers or altitudes, you could say, of the Bible. Let's start real low. There are words, right? We've got to understand what words mean, and Here's where we're a little bit handcuffed. Most of us don't know the original language that the Bible was written in, either Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New. So that's where we need some help or that's where we rely on using maybe multiple translations to compare and see is this a, a word that could be translated differently. Uh, but the meaning of words, that's, that's one very small part of interpretation is making sure we're getting the words, right, in their meaning. But then words make up a, a what? A sentence. You've got to figure out what sentences mean, right? You've got to interpret sentences. And then we have to understand what, what a chunk means, like a paragraph, right? What, what do a group of sentences mean? It's a paragraph. And then you've got the whole context in flow of maybe two or three paragraphs in a row. You could call that tracing the argument, Trent will talk about that later on this morning. The flow of thought in the author's mind. You have to ask yourself as you begin in a new verse, is this part of the main thought that was before or is there a new main thought going on here? Has some kind of transition been made in the mind of, of the writer? We have to ask ourselves, what, what is the message of the book, its primary message, its purpose for being written, or we can also talk about in terms of genre or kinds of literature. You notice in your notes, both the message of the book and genre, are they have asterisks next to them, that's because uh, for my part this morning in our study together, I'll focus on those two things, uh, the message of a book and the genre, we're not there yet, we're still talking about big picture stuff. But if we keep backing up even bigger than message of the book or the kind of literature that it's in, you've got an era of redemptive history to consider. So what's going on in 1 Samuel? It'll be our next study, the Lord willing, come uh, mid-September. What's going on in First Samuel is not the same thing in God's plan as what's going on in, say, the book of Philippians, which we're studying this morning. Big difference, right? We have to keep that in mind. Now what's going on in the Psalms is different than what's going on in Revelation. Even what's going on in Acts is slightly different than what's going on in the gospel accounts. We have to keep that in mind. We have to know what came before. Keep this in mind. We're always picking up in the middle of the story, whether we're conscious of it or not. So when you begin First Samuel, you're picking up in a story that left off in Judges. You might just begin in First Samuel. We'll do that as a church but we'll also have to think about what, what was left off and what was said in Judges at the end and, and why First Samuel begins like it does, you see? We also need to think about how it all fits together. Once you get all these pieces of words and sentences and paragraphs and, and flow of thought and, and books and genre and era of redemptive history, we have to ask, how do these things fit together? And we call that theology. So there's biblical theology, which takes a theme of the Bible, like God's presence, and it traces the development, the ups and downs, the promises, and the fulfillment on a timeline almost, right? A historical development. That's biblical theology. Then there's systematic theology, which says, here's what we know now. Let's get outside of time. Let's just say, what we know of God and his ways now, this is what he means by being everywhere. And yet, sometimes he shows himself in a specific place more, more powerfully. And so you talk about his presence systematically along those lines, and it's, it's, it's part of the equation, isn't it? All right, third, now top of page four. Understanding genre or kinds of literature... And specifically what we'll get to is the New Testament epistles. So here's where I'll I'll invite your your input here. There are five, six or so different genres of literature in the Bible. You want to suggest any? Letters. Letters, Epistles would be letters and epistles. That's one. History. History. Yep. And those would be what books? First five and keep going right for a while there. Yeah, history books. Those are the that's the first section of our Bible. You could think of the Old Testament in terms of a history chunk, and then what's the middle chunk? Poetry. Poetry or wisdom literature. It's sometimes called wisdom literature. So that would be Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and then you get a third part of the Old Testament, which is prophecy right so that's the old testament some people think that the gospels are a, a different kind of history that, that's probably true they're doing something different than just record history they're they're teaching us about jesus they're very preachy uh that was okay way of doing history in the day of luke um and then we have like i said we like paul said just a minute ago we have epistles or letters as one of these uh, one of these genres of scripture as well. In our Bibles, that's Romans to 3 John. That's a big part of our Bibles, isn't it? And in many ways, the New Testament epistles or letters um, are head and shoulders in their usefulness for us above the others. That could be open to misunderstanding, but I'll show you maybe why in just a little bit. We have Romans to Third John. Paul's letters are first, then everyone else's, and they generally move from bigger ones to smaller ones. ever wondered why they're in the order they're in? It's not, uh, they're not in historical order, chronological order, or alphabetical. Um, so what's unique about these New Testament epistles? Well, for one, they always follow the same structure. Um, They always follow the same structure that you would find in any kind of letter writing in the Greco-Roman world of that day. There are four parts to every epistle. One is greeting. It's saying who it's from, who it's to, grace and peace, that kind of thing. Secondly, there's thankfulness in prayer. That's why Paul always has that section after he greets them and talks about praying for them, doesn't he? Or how much he loves them, he thanks them. The third section of an epistle is what we call the body. And these is where, this is the one where there's a big difference from one epistle to another. This is where each one gets its own special purpose and usefulness for the church, the body of the letter. And then, fourth, you've got salutations at the end. Of every epistle, that's where you've got you know some closing greeting. So and so says hi, greet everyone with a kiss, grace and peace again, that kind of thing. But if we're talking about what's unique to the epistles, we should also just even ask this maybe more plain question: Why did the apostles write letters? Think about it. Like, let's just not take that for granted. Let's, let's entertain this possibility, or let's entertain the question why they wrote New Testament letters. They, you know, the Gospels would come later, but teaching and preaching was done. Right? They, they preached the Gospel. Teaching was good happening as they traveled around back to these churches. And, you know, Paul taught in Ephesus for maybe three years or so after he'd been there as a missionary, you could say. What... Do the epistles do? Could be another way of wording. Or, or why are they needed? Or what did Paul hope to accomplish uh, when he wrote something? And so here's where I want you to speak to this. Give me some ideas of, of what you think the epistles do, that other parts of the Bible don't do? What's unique about them? What did Paul hope to accomplish when writing a letter? Specific issue. So, questions. Say that. Sorry about the writing here. Questions. Like guidance, discipline. discipline. Yeah. How about this? We'll say uh, confrontation where that's needed, and sometimes it's a sin issue, and sometimes it's a doctrinal issue. Right. Um. What What would be a letter of the Bible that has confrontation as its thrust? 1 Corinthians, right um, what would be one, Do you know, one for questions can you think of a place where Paul says uh, what's his language there yeah, there's a lot, there's probably four or five in 1 Corinthians that are clearly questions he's answering 1 Thessalonians 4, about the return of the Lord that would be another one of those okay, do you have one? Encouragement, Yeah, That I think that's a real category of just personal encouragement. Thankfulness for them. Um, warm communication. To kind of solidify the doctrine that they were putting forth to the same Yep. So it would be the same. Clear. Let's just call it instruction. Further instruction, like... What we'll would be an example of that? Doesn't look like there's much of an agenda, except this is a giant doctrinal treatise. Romans, right? Okay. What else? I'm going to think of two other categories: warning. Warning of what? Yeah. Um, example of this Galatians yeah Colossians would be another one right there's all kinds of chapter 2 especially there's Titus yeah okay Um, one more this is the hardest one to get so I'll give you a chance to to see if you think, think of it though yeah Yeah, I think, I think you're thinking the same thing I am, but I would word it like this. Logistics. Because there's these sections where Paul says, so-and-so's coming to you. Uh, greet so-and-so, uh, so-and-so says hi. And, and the logistics of coming and going and connecting other churches. Have this letter read um, in your church and then get the one from Thessalonica and read theirs. Right? There's, there's something of just logistics going on. Um, and maybe part of this too is updates on how, you're, how he's doing. How the church is doing. Right? So logistics slash updates. So, are those clear enough for you to write down? Because we'll come back to those. But I won't be able to save it. So, okay? Alright. That's Why apostles wrote letters. Hopefully, that shows us something of the need of why apostles would write letters. Let's talk fourthly about this the melodic line or major theme of Philippians. Melodic line what is a melodic line? Uh, In a song, it's a series of notes that are repeated throughout that keep coming back into the song. Uh, It's like a musical hook, sort of the way all country songs have a lyrical hook, right? A really clever lyrical hook about a sad dog and, you know, got hit by a pickup truck or something. There's this thing, or a tractor being sexy or something like that, you know. There's this thing that just, it's a hook. Uh, And so in almost all songs, there's a sort of musical hook as well. Um, That thread that keeps coming back, and it's really the essence of that song. So much so that uh, if one song's melodic line is too similar to another song's melodic line, uh, the one who made it first can take the other one to court and sue them, right, for infringement. Um, you stole their song. That's their, that the melody is identifiable. I mean, that's fascinating to me how courts can decide that. There has to be a science for how close one melody is to another, where it's now crossed the line and it's steely. Uh, I don't know what that is, but it proves that there's this melodic line that identifies a song as its own. Well, in that same way, every book of the Bible has a melodic line. It has a message, it has a theme, a thrust. Um, in every passage in that book of the Bible, then, will in some way relate to the melodic line of the whole. Okay, either by supporting that melodic line or by contrasting that melodic line, being something different than that melodic line. But that melodic line has to be kept in mind all through the study of the book in each passage because we understand each passage or even a verse better when we first understand or write what the book is about as a whole, and then we keep that in mind as we work our way through the book, right? In other words, the melodic line of a book is an important tool in the tool belt of a Bible interpreter, a, a Bible student. It's one of the tools. It's one of the ways that we see what a passage means. We study it more fully. We keep the whole in mind and say... Uh, does that change the way I, you know, I, I think these words, these four verses, five verses? I think they mean this. I think he's getting at that. And then you think about the whole. Does it support what you first thought about those five verses, or does it does it change things? Maybe. Let's think through how we, even outside of the Bible, how we determine what a piece of literature is about. How do we determine? What a piece of literature is about. And I'll write these down on the screen. Help me out with this. What's that? Motifs. Motifs? What what do you mean? Um, Different themes that come up over and over again. Yeah. So, um, repeated themes? Repeated words, we could say. Um, Words, themes. Etc. Sorry about this. Um, okay, that's one. Five W's and an H. I'm sorry? Five W's and H. What are the five W's and H? What yeah, okay. That's a good one. I'm trying to think of where, how that would fit into what I have here on this list. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's a good one. So let's do this. Let's put the, are there really five W's? Age. Okay. Let's put that to the side for now and keep thinking about other things maybe. Who it's written to? Well, that would be a who, yeah. But that's it's an important part. And I'll get to maybe a better way of describing all of uh, what what Jill and, and uh, Patrice set up here. Kelly? Um, not concluding, statements. concluding statements. Do you mean at the end of the book? Okay, um, propositions, say that, or concluding statements. So certain sentences, it's all scripture, but isn't it true? Certain sentences carry more interpretive weight than others, right? Is that fair to say? we got to look for those sentences that carry more interpretive weight than others. We'll see examples of this when we dig into Philippians in a bit. Anything else? What about all things that are going on in that moment? Situations? Context, yeah. Let's, I'll just write that down. That's, that's one of them. Uh, how about I put this? I'm going to call it connecting dots. So this is context, um, background backstory. Let's, let's let's word it like that. There's a backstory, right? If it doesn't make sense yet, it will when we get to Philippians. Let's just hold that thought for now. Two two more key ones. Purpose. A purpose? statement. Sometimes it's just stated, isn't it? Who said that, didn't you? Yeah. Written. Yeah. Uh, we saw it in First Peter. Anyone know. Where it is in First Peter? To the beginning or end? It's at the end. Chapter 5, verse 12. I have written to you that you may know the true grace of God and that you'd stand firm in it. He says why he's written. Jude does the same thing. Um, Paul in Romans begins and ends with why he's written to them. So, stated purpose, is that what you said, Danielle? Or is that just close enough? How about this, uh, you're in ninth grade, book report's due tomorrow, you haven't read the book, you got it though, you checked it out from the library, you did step one, Uh, you got to write the book report tonight, what might you do? Cliff's notes, yeah, there's, (laughs) what's that? Collinsick, sick. Okay. Read the foreword. That's that's an option. See how it chapter headings would be a good one. See how it ends. Yeah, and in, 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 in addition to that, what? Beginning. How it begins. Beginning and end, right? You can tell a lot by a, a book by reading the first chapter and the last chapter. So we'll call it beginning and end. All right. So here's what we're doing as we look at these five different things. Now now we're gonna look at Philippians. I'll keep this up here. And really let's keep in mind here that these the five W's and the H really are connecting dots. We're trying to figure out what's happening behind the scenes. What they know that we don't know. Right? Here here's the thing about the connecting dots point. Knowing the context, the backstory, why it was needed, what Paul is aiming to do. Um, that helps us so much but it's not easy to get at is it because Paul knew why he was writing and the Philippians knew why he was writing and we're 2,000 years away uh, on the other side of the world and we're trying to piece together what Paul was saying without saying what they knew but didn't need to be spoken and you've got to be careful because you can read too much into scripture by heading down that path but You're going to miss some scripture if you don't entertain the possibility that they know more than you do. uh, That there's something going on here that you're not aware of. Okay? All right, so now pull out your Philippians page. And really, uh, I don't think you you need your notes for for what we're going to do now. We're going to take the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, and we're going to stare at Philippians. Okay? Uh, Hopefully, you read through Philippians. Before today, in preparation for today, Um, I'm sure not all of you did, but whether you did or didn't, what I want you to be doing as we look at this is you'll be looking down at Philippian words, and I'll ask you questions that are sort of based on what we've talked about already, and you'll go looking for answers, and then you'll speak up when you see something. Um, So this is up to you how, how good this will be. I've got, I think, decent questions, um, but it'll mean you guys staring. And remember, like I said, it's printed in front of you like this, in this format, so that it's just one flip over to get the other side of the book, and so that you can mark it up however you want. Here's how I marked up Philippians this week. I've done it dozens of different ways, different times, but uh, I thought I'd do a fresh one for, for this week. And so here's how I marked up Philippians. I know you don't have highlighters with you, probably. Um, but I, I put a code, you can see the color code at the bottom there so each of those colors are different themes that I saw in Philippians and, and so you can't do the colors probably if you don't have highlighters with you but, but just mark it up all over, draw lines, you know, write initials, things in the margin, that sort of thing and then like I said I'll ask us some questions and, um, and as you see it then we'll, we'll just talk about it and let me qualify the expectations here uh, we're trying to get to the melodic line of the book of Philippians. That's really our goal. We're trying to see what the theme is about, what Paul was getting at. We're trying to understand something of the backstory. What's the main thrust? Uh, and this will be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Um, I, I preached through Philippians twice. I probably know Philippians better than any book of the Bible. Um, and the stuff I'm going to hopefully get you to see on your own today is stuff that I didn't see the first two times of preaching through Philippians. Okay, so that shows you this is fire hose stuff, but the goal is this, that you get a good taste of the water coming from the fire hose. And you go, that was fun, I got a little bit. And I'm going to try that again. I'm going to do some more of that. Okay? Okay. All right, a bunch of questions. You look down. As I ask a question, I should see heads drop to that page on Philippians and you're looking around uh, and skimming, reading, remembering things, thinking things, marking things, and then talking. If you're with someone here today and you want to whisper back and forth on what you're seeing and make it a, a partner thing, then, then do that. But once, uh, once we start talking as a group, then if you could break that up. All right, so here's the first question to ask. Is there any kind of purpose statement? Is there anything in here that gets at why Paul wrote it or, or assumes a, a, a situation that he needed to write? Is there, is there anything close to a purpose statement? It may not be, um, I have written to you so that like it is in 1 Peter 5.12, but maybe there's something close. That's a big theme, but let's look for language that talks about his intent. So it's Paul, what's that? 1 verse 9. Where it's saying, my prayer is that your love may have earned more and Yeah, don't look for a theme. Look for language that says what I'm about to say. What what is it? I want you to know. See, that's what we're after. That's purpose statement stuff, right? I want you to know. It's almost like uh, he is anticipating a question. What question would he be anticipating? What question is in the mind of the Philippians... That Paul now answers with the words, I want you to know. What's that? Why are you in prison? Why is this all happening? Yeah. To rejoice? Uh, No, look, look, uh, I want you to know what has happened to me. What has happened to me. So what has happened to him? Sarah said it, it was imprisonment. So they're, they're wondering, how is Paul doing do we see that anywhere else do we see anywhere else in Philippians that Paul says you were concerned four, ten. yep 410 read it yep in the other place maybe chapter 2 I'm sorry I can't hear yep yeah verse 26 specifically Epaphroditus has been a longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill Okay. Let's put that on ice for just a second. We're going to come back to some of those <coughs> circumstantial themes. Here's a question. What themes, ideas, or words did you notice when you read through it? Hopefully you did. Get repeated. What's that? Yeah, the the progress of the gospel is Paul's language or the advance of the gospel. So we would call it the spread of the gospel, right? Yeah, spread of the gospel is one of them for sure. And where do you see that, Julie? Julie? What else gets repeated in Philippians? In Christ. What's that? In Christ. In Christ, yep, that's all over. In Christ. Yep. Yeah, rejoice is mentioned like sixteen times, I believe. Uh, It's off the top of my head, but it's it's all over. In fact, let me give you the references, and I want you to circle these, because we'll come back to it, Lord willing. Uh, End of verse 18, there's two rejoices, right? Oh, back up. Uh, End of verse 4, my prayer with joy. Circle joy. And end of verse 18, twice, he says, I will rejoice. And then towards the end of 25, chapter 1, for your progress in joy in faith. Then chapter 2, verse 17, twice again. 17 and 18, glad and rejoice with you. You should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay? Chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, that you might rejoice at seeing him again, so receive him, the Lord, with all joy. Next one, chapter 3, verse 1. We're almost (coughs) done. Chapter 3, verse 1. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord doesn't happen again until chapter 4, verse 1. The Philippians are my joy and crown. Two times again in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Okay? So rejoicing is a major theme here. That's certainly something for us to consider for a melodic theme. But here's where I want to ask you this. These things we've mentioned so far. With each one of them, we should ask this question: Why is Paul getting at that? Or what is he getting at by talking about that? Is that too vague of a question? So, just take one example, for instance. And I mean, certainly, joy and rejoicing are major themes. Uh, right? It's a repeated theme. But you have to look at each example and say, is his goal there simply joy? Like he's just this joy dispenser. That's what he prays, joy. So he talks about joy. That's what he wants for them, joy. Is that it? So give me an example where you'd say, no, it's more complicated than that. The joy has some connection to something else. Say it again? Yeah, chapter 1, verse 18, that one? Why does he rejoice in his suffering, though? Let's keep backing up. I think that's a little further back than the verse 18 would go. So look more closely. What, what's Paul dealing with in that paragraph, twelve to eighteen? Spread of the gospel. What's going on where the gospel is spreading? What? what t- tell me the story that you're picturing in your mind as you read twelve to eighteen. Just suffering. Take it in, Dan. He he the of Rome being saved. Yep. Yeah, people in the Roman guard are being saved. It's a good thing that Paul's in prison for a few reasons. The, uh, the soldiers are getting saved. What else? Some of, you, some of these have already been said, but say it again. It's just bullet pointed now. Paul's glad that he's in prison. It's a good thing. He can rejoice in it because yeah. Yep, some brothers are getting more bold about this. They're like, yeah, Paul's going to prison for this thing. This thing's worth suffering for. It's making him more bold. And then there's another reason, a weird one. Yeah, they may be talking bad about him, but uh, they're preaching the gospel. However, poorly they're doing it, and however poorly their motives are for doing it, because they want to hurt Paul, they want to um, they want to add to his imprisonment, add to his problems. So they they view themselves in competition with Paul. We can't really even imagine this kind of a group, right? Uh, they're Preaching a biblical gospel, or else Paul wouldn 't say "I rejoice in it because the gospel's preached, um, but he does say that so so they 're preaching a biblical gospel, but in yet they're trying to add harm to Paul and uh, and they're using the preaching of the gospel to harm Paul to add to his imprisonment, but paul's okay with that he's okay with that because give me the verse where's the concluding verse of, the, of this whole theme It's verse 18. Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Okay? So, there we we would say with that, that reference to joy, the joy isn't really the focus, right? It's not the main thing. It's the product of the main thing. The main thing is the spread of the gospel here. And behind that is their concern for Paul, right? He's in prison, they're concerned, and he's doing this whole paragraph here to tell them it's okay, right? It's really about their comfort. It's okay. And, and really, even though he doesn't give a command here to rejoice, he's by implication saying, I rejoice in this. Isn't, isn't he saying, you rejoice in this too. Don't be shaken in your faith. Don't think this is a strange thing. Don't think this is bad. Don't just pray for me to get out. Okay? What do we know about the Philippian church from the book of Philippians? (laughs) They partnered with Paul in the first day. Yep. What verse is that? (laughs) That's a big theme, isn't it? Not just from the first day, but till now. How else have they partnered with Paul? Yeah, I think that's part of the partnership. There's more. Uh, how do we put it? More concrete partnership. Yeah, they stood by him when no one else did. How in chapter two does Paul say they supported him? I'm sorry, didn't hear, Paul. Yeah, that's part of the partnership, sure. But think more concretely. Yeah, he's a messenger, a paradise. So look, look from verse 17, uh, sorry, 19 to the end of the chapter, basically, or just to 26. 19 to 26. Here's a chunk we should give some time to. Let's just read it line by line. Let's tuck away what's happening in the story. What's the backstory here? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Timothy had been there. Timothy's now with Paul. The Philippians need help. They could use some help. For one reason, Epaphroditus has been sent to paul and so paul says i'm going to send timothy to you soon paul can't come right he's in prison i'll send you timothy in that way i too may be cheered by news of you so i'm not sure whether i'm going to get out of prison or not but if i don't get out of prison and don't get to you before then timothy will come back to me with a report about how you're doing okay Uh, Logistics, right? This is all just communication. How's it going? Updates. For I have no one like him, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not that of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. He was with Paul there for probably a year and a half or so. He served me in the gospel. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Maybe, who knows what that means? Who knows what Paul was waiting for exactly? Uh, But he's waiting on something to determine whether he'll probably go with Timothy or send Timothy and Paul stays in prison. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also. Verse 25, now listen to this. I have thought it necessary to send you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm all the more eager then to send him to you. So Epaphroditus is a messenger of money and ministry. The Philippian church sends to Paul. And Paul's writing in response to that with thankfulness. That's one of the key things here, right? Thankfulness. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And who's taking this letter, Philippians, back? How's it going to get back to Philippi? UPS? UPS? Epaphroditus, right? The first UPS. Epaphroditus. EPS. Uh, Epaphroditus is going to take it back. And Paul wants to come soon. Timothy will come shortly. Do you see all the different things we can piece together there just by looking at these verses and saying, okay, okay, here's what's going on. Here's something of why Paul sat down and penned this. They're concerned about Epaphroditus because he almost died. Yeah, they should know. He didn't die. Uh, in fact, Epaphroditus was worried that they thought he was dead. And so Paul wants to send Epaphroditus back to them. He wants to send Timothy eventually. He wants them to know, I'm fine. Yes, I'm still in prison, but I'm fine. The gospel's preached. That's the most important thing. Okay, So all the comings and goings, the communication of logistics, it's, it's all relevant to the, to the picture here of what's going on, of Paul's suffering, of why he's writing Philippians. And though it seems like boring or trivial information, it's often very relevant to, to the book of Philippians and interpreting other passages. I don't have time to show you that now, but, but, but trust me, it is. Okay, a few more questions. Is there anything of a shortcoming in the Philippian church that Paul might be writing to confront? Or, or let me maybe start with this question, a broader question. What's the feel or tenor of the book of Philippians? Sure. Well, I feel like it's a pretty loving, unified body, but it does have to call out some ladies at the end to get along. Yep. So there's some unrest, apparently. Yep. Yeah, it is warm and loving. It's uniquely warm and loving. It's probably the most flowery in its uh, affectionate words compared to the other epistles that Paul writes. So he's got a lot of connection with these Christians. Uh, What's that? Selfish ambition? ambition? Oh, yeah, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Right, so Sarah mentioned uh, two ladies in the church in chapter 4. We'll get back to your your comment just a second. Chapter 4, verse 2, look at that. I entreat Iodia and Syntyche, two ladies, to agree or get along in the lord and i ask you also true companion we don't know who that is but uh they knew paul knew help these women and they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together okay so so they don't they're not getting along and selfish ambition what was that 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, right? And then into the mind of Christ, which is humble, servant-like, sacrificial, verses 5 through 8. All that, part of that theme. Now, now, chapter 2, verse 1, that's the beginning of chapter, so surely that's a new thought, right? Uh, Don't fool yourself. Back up. Was there uh, something else about this? One seventeen, yeah, you see that selfish ambition there, don't you? But more closely to the end of the chapter, and this is the first commandment. That's something to tuck away. The first commandment of Philippians is what? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yep, verse twenty-seven. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, and then he gives a qualifying statement. Put that. Parentheses. what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel well in part underneath that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel okay unity is a big part of philippians isn't it by the way how did he pray for them? back in verse nine is that relevant his prayer was that they would what? Their love would abound more and more. Right? He's praying for more love. He's commanding them be one. Stand firm together. He's telling them be humble like Christ. If you, if you have the gospel, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you've got the spirit, then be selfless, humble, sacrificial like Jesus. And then you've got that specific case of Iodia and Syntyche. Get along, ladies. Help them. Unity. It's a big part of Philippians. Uh, quickly, any outside threats that Paul wants to warn about? Yep. Yeah. Look out for the dogs, he says, right? And then that really is his whole reason for writing about the gospel. This is one of those great gospel sections, verses 4 through 11. And yet, the purpose here is to contrast it with false teachers that were apparently buzzing about Philippi. Watch out for the dogs. Okay, so there's opposition. There's still one theme that is really major, and we've touched on it, but we haven't seen it in its fullness. Remember, one of the ways we look for a melodic line is beginning and end. Remember? One way of doing the book report is read the first chapter, read the last chapter. So what do we see at the beginning of chapter 1 that we also see in the last couple of paragraphs of chapter 4? Take time. four 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 nine. I was thinking a little later on. So think after that. Whatever you see, 10 and following. See if you can find something similar to beginning. That we've already talked about, a verse we've already read. Partnership. I mean, chapter 1, verse 5 says, I thank God for the partnership we have in the gospel. And then the very next verse. partakers right or, or no, not the next verse verse 7 for you are all partakers with me of grace we share grace but not just grace you also share in my imprisonment he says and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you share in gospel protection you share in gospel mission you share in gospel suffering with me that's a partnership and that partnership is described in chapter 4 Verse ten, which is really a retelling of stuff he already said about Epaphroditus in chapter two. What does he say in chapter four? He says, "You've revived your concern for me. You, you were concerned before, but you didn't have opportunity to give to me, and then I got in prison. I was in trouble, and so uh, and he gives this parenthetical comment eleven to thirteen about contentment. I'm fine. I ought to be." low and to abound and in every circumstance I've learned to be content and then verse 14 back to this thing it was kind of you to share share, same word share my trouble and you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica you sent help for my needs, once and again, I don't seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive the full payment, verse eighteen and more. I'm well supplied. I receive from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent—a fragrant offering, acceptable uh, sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. I think that's our melodic line. Partnership, right? That's the one thing I would say. I have to give it a word that holds the whole together. And guess what? You discover that from the passages in Philippians that are not as fun to read. Right? Let's be honest. You've got to piece together what's happening at the end of chapter 2 in Epaphroditus and Timothy. You've got to piece together what Paul's getting at. In chapter one, when he talks about being in prison and the gospel's preached, and some weirdos are preaching it to oppose Paul, and ah, it's the kind of stuff you want to scratch your head at a little bit and then keep reading and get to some really good stuff, like Jesus Christ being humbled for us, being a servant for us, and, and, and that is wonderful stuff. but the point of that passage is to show the Philippian church a, a model for their own partnership. That, it's not just that they share in this thing with Paul. They share in this thing with each other, too. Right there in Philippi. The whole thing's about sharing. Partnership. Partaking. Together. And again, you discover that by looking at these sections that look like it's just FYIs. Just communique. Just updates. Just throw away thank yous that really don't apply to us. But that's when we miss out, and that's when we start just putting a single Bible verse in our pocket and liking it. So, like, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. It's one of the first verses I've ever memorized. I love it. But the more I understand about chapter 1 and what's happened and why Paul says that, the more it means to me, as it should. Or, I can do all things through Christ who gives me Strength. When I was a kid, I had a, a ski, a skier poster on my wall. And it said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, including a back scratcher." <laughs> well, that verse wasn't about skiing, was it? It never was. Uh, it's about not having enough to go skiing. <laughs> yeah, right? It's about being content with having a lot and being content with being hungry. Uh, Because Christ is enough. I guess another way you could word the melodic line of Philippians is to center it around the gospel, but but then it feels like that's the the answer to everything. Like, you know, any question you ask your kids about the Bible, they say Jesus, when they're little anyway. Uh, The gospel is you could you could talk about the primacy of the gospel and the power of the gospel and the progress of the gospel. And all that would would really summarize a lot of Philippians, wouldn't it? The goal is to see how much of Philippians can we get under the same umbrella. And then when you feel like, that's a pretty big umbrella. There's a lot under that umbrella. Then you take that umbrella as you read Philippians again. And you just know you're under this umbrella, right? And sometimes it's not going to be exactly underneath it, what you're reading. but, But a lot of times it will. A lot of times it will. Well, my time's up. On your fifth page, you have resources. And I won't go through those. I'll just let you peruse those on your own. Some of them are hard copies. Um, Some of them are Bibles, like the ESV Study Bible. A lot of you have that here with you today. They're online Bible resources. Ron will talk about Blue Letter Bible Uh, In just a little bit here, Um, there's some commentaries or places where you can go online for free commentaries. I'd encourage you, rather than uh, me show you a lot of specifics right now, obviously we don't have the time for that, but I encourage you just to peruse websites like this and start seeing. Oh, John Calvin's commentaries are on here for free? Wow, I didn't know that. Martin Luther's sermons are on here for free? Wow, I didn't know that. Um, There's a lot on the web that's there for free. Use it as a way to assist you in what we did today, but not replace what we did today. Nothing can replace you, alone with your Bible, looking at it, praying about it, seeing things, drawing lines, circling things, coloring it, making these for yourself. So some takeaways would be, Don't just read a book of the Bible once. I mean, occasionally that's fine, or maybe most of the time it's fine. Every now and then you've got to study a book of the Bible, which means read it more than once in a row. Uh, Print out the Bible at times so that you can mark it up like crazy more than you'd want to do in your your Bible uh, with a a nice leather jacket on it. Um, Other takeaways listen for this kind of thing in sermons, especially sermon series right? That would be another thing. Um, Just think about this tool as a a tool for the the tool belt of interpretation. The melodic line is a tool in your tool belt for uh, interpretation.